You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Uh, I mentioned just a, just a brief moment ago that First and Second Samuel tells us the story of the rise and the reign of King David, but it's also at the same time telling us um, about the fall of another king, right? King Saul. Now we've We've been in 2 Samuel for a few weeks now, and it's easy probably for us to relegate Saul to 1 Samuel and to think that we're, that we're done with him. And yet there is a contrast between these two rulers and between these two lines that is still on display for us in 2 Samuel. So if you're uh, unfamiliar with who King Saul is, King Saul is David, the current king, his predecessor. Now, so he's his predecessor, but he was not David's father, right? David was not a part of Saul's house. And Saul was one who who actually had an heir by the name of Jonathan, a man who we know from previous record was a man of great humility, a, a man of great faithfulness. And we know that Saul and David's relationship was was complicated at best. Um, murderous at worst, right? Saul hated David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, loved David. Saul tried to kill David, but Jonathan honored David as the true king. Now, the reason that I bring up Saul and Jonathan is because we actually have a mention of Jonathan here again in 2 Samuel chapter 9, even though we know that Jonathan died at the very end of 1 Samuel in chapter 31, right? So Jonathan's been dead for a while, and yet here he is brought back to the surface. He's mentioned again from David's own mouth. And so we need to get a little bit of background information. In 1 Samuel, David and Jonathan make a covenant with one another. And we get the gist of that covenant in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, starting in verse 42, and this is what it says. It says, Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, David, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And so here's what we we come to find out. Jonathan knew that David was going to be king, which is odd, right? Because Jonathan is the son of the current king. And yet when they're sharing this moment, when this covenant is spoken into being by Jonathan and David, Jonathan is humbly stepping aside for David. In doing this, Jonathan is paving the way for David to assume the throne without any conflict, without any question of its legitimacy, right? Jonathan in this moment is willing to decrease, and he doesn't know it yet, but he's willing even to die so that the true king might increase. And so Jonathan and David, they make a covenant with one another. Now, some of us might not be familiar with that word covenant. What is a Covenant. Well, in the Bible, a covenant is quite simply a relationship that is bound by oath. And in the Bible, again, God is always at least in some way involved. So when God is not party to the covenant, God is a witness to the covenant, right? Which is why Jonathan says those words in chapter 20, verse 42 of 1 Samuel. 
Let us leave from this place knowing that God is a witness to this agreement, this oath that we have made with one another. And as part of Jonathan and David's covenant, David promises what? Perpetual love and loyalty to Jonathan's offspring. So any children that Jonathan would have, David promises to love and to be loyal to in perpetuity. And now we come to 2 Samuel chapter 9. After both Saul and Jonathan are dead, David has been anointed king of Israel. The ark of God's presence has come to Jerusalem. David has defeated all of his enemies. At long last, there is peace in the land of Israel. God himself, last week we saw in chapter 7, has made a covenant with David that's not, not all that dissimilar from David and Jonathan's covenant. And now David is sitting down to rest and to feast and to enjoy the peace. And that's where we pick up in 2 Samuel 9. And the first four verses say this. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. So here we see King David kicking back, he's relaxing, he's enjoying his new secured kingdom, the peace that God has given over that kingdom. And in this moment, he remembers the covenant that he made with Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20. He remembers this covenant with Jonathan, so he sends a servant of the house of Saul to find any remaining offspring of Jonathan. And what follows is one of the most moving stories in the entire Old Testament. Verses 6 and 7 say this, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and he fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. Let's stop right there. Mephibosheth, say that ten times fast, um, <laughs> was the last remaining member of Saul's household, right? And now, I, it, it's, it's my temptation to shorten the name and just call him M or Mef or Mephi or whatever would be helpful, but the reality is that the name Mephibosheth is so important to our understanding of what is taking place between David and the offspring of Jonathan. You see, the name Mephibosheth is rooted in the Hebrew word for shame. And Lodibar, the place where he was living, the place where he comes from, is a word that means nothing. And I don't mean nothing like it has no meaning. I mean nothing like the thing. Right? So here is a cripple who is covered in shame, so much so that he bears it by name, living in no man's land. 
a nobody from nowhere, and one day Mephibosheth gets an invitation to come and see the king. Now, now let's think about that from Mephibosheth's perspective for just a moment, right? His grandfather was Saul, the former king of Israel. And Saul was the only kind of king that Mephibosheth had ever known, had ever seen, right? And so he knew Saul as angry and jealous and retributive, right? Saul cursed David repeatedly, but now Saul has died and David has taken his place. So arguably... Mephibosheth is the last remaining member of Saul's house that would have any claim to David's throne. He's David's last potential rival. And not a very intimidating one at that, right? And so of course, of course, when he enters into the presence of David, he throws himself before the king. It says that he gave him homage. So he immediately makes, <laughs> makes it clear that he is not there in any way, shape, or form to challenge the rule of King David. He throws himself before the king. He pays him homage. He says, I am your servant. But David responds very quickly. Do not fear. Mephibosheth was probably very afraid. He was probably ready in this moment to be executed. A king like Saul would have eliminated every threat to his throne as he tried to do with David. But David is not like Saul. Keep reading in verse 7. It says this, David said to him, Do not fear for what? I will show you kindness. Why? For the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. So instead of treating Mephibosheth like an enemy, David restores to him his inheritance and he invites him to feast at his table as a member of the royal household forever in perpetuity. Verse 11 says that David treats Mephibosheth like a son. He becomes an adopted son of the king of Israel. Not only that, but in verse 12, it tells us that Mephibosheth himself had a son. And so David welcomes Jonathan's son and Jonathan's grandson to feast at his table. What's going on here? Well, David is keeping covenant. He's keeping covenant with Jonathan. Now, make no mistake, it is no... It, it, it is not just circumstantial, it is not just coincidence that two short chapters after God speaks covenant to David, that David is now honoring the covenants that he has made. Right? David is keeping covenant the same way that God keeps his covenants. This is the biblical pattern for how God operates with respect to those whom he covenants with. This is the pattern for how God relates to us. The Bible repeatedly says that God keeps his covenant promises to a thousand generations. We see an image of that, a reflection of that here in the treatment that David has for Mephibosheth and his son. 
Last week in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with David. God made promises to David that he intended to keep forever. And so it's not a coincidence that David responds by keeping a few promises of his own. He's faithful like God is faithful. Now, before we get too high on David, look at what he says in verse 3. In verse 3, he says this. The king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? It's not David's kindness that David is showing to Mephibosheth. It's God's. David's actions were not only in response to God's kindness, rather his actions are an extension of God's own kindness. And so David is faithful like God is faithful, and he is kind like God is kind. And brothers and sisters, this morning, this is the most glorious feature of our religion. We have a kind and faithful king. Again, the temptation, right, throughout reading these stories is to see ourselves as David, right? To see ourselves as the hero of the story, but as has so often been the case throughout this reading together of 1st and 2nd Samuel, we are not King David in this instance. You know who we are? We are Mephibosheth. Don't you see it? We were helpless and estranged. We were enemies of the king. We were crippled members of the household of Adam, a fallen king. When Adam sinned in the garden, he lost his kingdom, and we were his sons, his daughters. But now we've been invited into the household of Jesus, the crucified king who obeyed God and reclaimed the fallen kingdom. We are right to fear his wrath, and yet, when we cast ourselves before his throne and we confess his lordship, his kingship, we are met with total grace. Instead of wrath, we are shown covenant kindness to a thousand generations. We are Mephibosheth. King Jesus has adopted us into His family. King Jesus has given us a name and a place within His household. King Jesus has restored our lost inheritance forever. And then some, King Jesus feeds us at His table. Ephesians 2 sheds light on this for us when it says this. God... Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Interjection, but get this part. He's made us alive together with Christ, and He has raised us up with Him, and what? Seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one 
may boast. And just for a moment, right? Just for a moment, let's set aside the blessings that we enjoy from the hand of King Jesus. Don't think about what you're getting out of the deal. Just think about the character and the humility of Jesus, of this King that David is foreshadowing. Who can help but honor a king like this? Who can help but give their allegiance to a king like this? This is King Jesus. In Luke 14, Jesus gives instructions on how to throw a party. And this is what he says. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. King Jesus is giving a feast. King Jesus is setting out a banquet for you and for me, and He is calling to Himself those of us who are willing to admit that we are poor, willing to admit that on our own we are crippled and lame, willing to admit that we are blind and that He can lead us in the right way. And by His invitation, we are blessed because we can't repay Him. In the same fear and shame that Mephibosheth comes before King David, we come before King Jesus, and the same response that David gives to Mephibosheth, Jesus gives to us, which is, do not fear. And so we don't have to make excuses this morning. We can simply humble ourselves. We can simply admit our poverty. We can confess our inability to repay Jesus. And in so doing, we will be invited to feast at His table forever. And so, brothers and sisters, the most important thing that we can do this morning in response to God's Word is to come and feast at the Lord's table That is our best and most practical and most immediate application point, if you will. But before we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want to leave us with one question. And it's a question that we can hold on to and ask it of ourselves as we drive home today. And the question is this. Who do I know from the fallen house of Adam to whom I can show the kindness of God. Because the reality is, brothers and sisters, that yes, we are Mephibosheth, but we've been invited in. We've been allowed entrance into the courts of the king. We've been adopted into his family. We have provision from his table forever. There are other Mephibosheths out there who do not or have not yet tasted from that same well of grace. Brothers and sisters, we don't share with others simply because God has made us rich. We share with others because we are God's representatives on this earth. And as His representatives, the Lord works through us to bless other people. We have authority to act on God's behalf. We extend God's kindness in Jesus' name. And so, brothers and sisters, we are simply not permitted to come into this place week after week 
to receive the Lord's blessing, to feast at the Lord's table, and then to leave and share that with nobody. It's not right. Rather, we should be open-handed with the things that we've given, and even more importantly, open-mouthed about the grace we've been shown. There's something wonderful in walking into a room filled with people that all together can recognize that we are about as useful to God as Mephibosheth was to David. We're all crippled cast-offs, riddled with shame, living nowhere, the last remnant of a fallen house, but the invitation to eat at Jesus' table is precisely for us because God's covenant faithfulness and His kindness are extended to us to the thousandth generation. Imagine what it would be like. One, if we truly understood and believed and reveled in what that meant. The staggering wonder of God's grace towards us. But then, imagine this. Imagine someone who spends the majority of their life trying to justify themselves for an outside world that is watching. And if you need any evidence that we're trying, just look at anyone's social media profile. Imagine what it would look like for that person whose constant daily struggle, whose constant daily thought from wake up in the morning to go to bed in the evening, have I lived in such a way that is not only enjoyable for me, but attractive to others. Imagine if that person would get to come into a room like this where we can let the filter off. Where everyone in the room is going around in the circle and acknowledging that we're crippled. Acknowledging that we've all walked in here this morning with a limp. But that we've walked in with a limp and in acknowledging it, we are healed and provided for and justified, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. When we say that the church is first and foremost a people to belong to, it is that people that we are talking about. That, that people that don't focus in on the limp of another because we know that we've got one of our own. Those people that can welcome as we've been welcomed. Those people that can feed generously as we've been fed generously. That is what we have been called into. That is what God is doing, not only in this isolated moment in Israelite history between King David and an insignificant heir of Saul, but what God is doing in all of history through the otherworldly, everlasting work of King Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for this morning. Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together. We're grateful to be gathered together in the knowledge. God, not, not trying to hide that we're broken, but Lord, acknowledging that we're broken, knowing that you heal things that are broken. And so, Father, I pray for those of us in the room uh, this morning who may have felt like uh, we needed to wear a certain smile or we needed to speak a certain way or we needed to uh, walk with a certain amount of confidence or carry a certain size Bible. And God, that you would allow us to freely acknowledge our weakness, knowing that you have and will pick us up and seat us at your table and feast with us forever. I pray for those of us in the room this morning, God, who, <laughs> who have never experienced this kind of welcome. Maybe we don't know who Jesus is or what He's done. I pray, Father, that in this story we would see not only glimpses, God, but wonderful, giant reproductions of Your glory. Lord, that we would see Your character unfold before us. Your welcoming and Your kindness. God, yes, You are terrifying in Your holiness. You are powerful and sovereign. And yet, God, You say to us this morning, do not fear. And the reason that we don't have to fear, God, is because Jesus has taken Your wrath on our behalf, supplied for us righteousness in Your presence, and given us access to You, whereby we can come and enjoy Your household. For that we are always and eternally grateful. God, I pray that as we come to the table this morning, Lord, that, um, that we would feast that we would know, God, that this invitation to come and partake of bread and wine is ultimately a placeholder for a more glorious, more wonderful, more satisfying, more glorious feast that is to come. That we've been, act, been given access to by your kindness and by your faithfulness to the covenant that you've made with your people. To love them to the thousandth generation. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.